Hello everybody, it's time for another fascinating episode of Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. On today's podcast, I'm joined by commentator extraordinaire Jose Bean. Now, what can I tell you about Jose? Well, she's a rare breed of commentator, having come from a background outside of sport. Her memory and fact retention is absolutely phenomenal, making her one of the most interesting people I know. She's also a linguistical megamaster and can commentate with fluency in several languages. She also has an amazing outlook on how to take the chances that are offered to you, and you want to hear her advice on that. But does she know the current price of a brie sandwich in a top restaurant in Cavorden? There's only one way to find out. So grab a refreshment of your choice, perch on your favourite piece of seating furniture, and enjoy the oral charms of Jose Bean. You know it's that time again. Jose Bean is like you or me. She's a cycling fan. But when her knowledge of the sport began to get noticed on social media, she was offered her first ever commentary gig by Eurosport. It's safe to say she grasped that opportunity with both hands, becoming a regular fixture on Dutch TV. But being in the public eye also brought unwanted attention from online trolls, leading her to step back from the sport for a short while in 2019. When she returned, she began commentating in English and found that the warm reception gave her a second wind, making English-speaking cycling fans all the richer for it. Jose's commentary is insightful, informative and funny, exactly the kind of attributes I also seek in a podcast guest. Check it out. Jose, lovely to have you on the podcast. Um, thanks for joining us. Sorry about me having to swap laptops um, with my, I had a bit of a headphone problem, but Jose, great to have you and how are you? Fine. Uh, looking out of the window, it's raining, and I took advantage of the final three hours of sunshine we have this week due to all the storms uh, rolling in from the Atlantic. It's been pretty grim, hasn't it, uh, of late? Uh, this storm, I believe, um, has got a name. Is it Harold or something? Is it a man's name, this one? It's, uh, well, it's Dudley. Dudley. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was some older chap. Well, not older chap. I mean, I know. Actually, do you know any young Dudleys? I don't. I don't know any Dudleys. To be fair, you don't like, know the any last storm, The last storm here was called Corrie, Corrie, which is basically the name for a elderly knitting person in the Netherlands. So everybody had like a kind of mellow feel with the storm, and I don't know what we can expect from Dudley. I just it, maybe he plays a banjo. I don't know. Sounds like, a, sounds like a fun guy. I'm just, I'm trying to think, Amin. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm mm-hmm. going to fire up my phone just quickly um, and just see if I know any Dudleys. Um, hold on a minute. Hold on. I don't just know any, any, Dudley. any Dudleys. Hold on. No results. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I do know there's one Dudley called Dudley Hayton, and he was a, an ex-professional. Um, yeah, and after Dudley, we have Eunice. Oh, is that the in next the, storm? Yeah, they're kind of twinning. It's like first, and then Eunice is kind of catching up with Dudley. Right. So I wonder if there's like, like a couple out there called Dudley and Eunice, <laughs> like, like awaiting this storm and having lots of fun with it. Can you imagine that, having a word with the, 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 with Dudley and say, well, so what do you do for a living then? Well, I'm a storm. Uh, you know, what? Yeah, I, I, I just go around blowing trees down and stuff and making people wet. What a yeah. job. What a strange job. <laughs> Anyway, and we're off on a tangent already. <laughs> we're off lovely. on a tangent already, um, Josie. For our listeners, uh, many of whom will, of course, know you, can you just um, give us a sense of place? So, describe where in the world you are and what you can see immediately 
around you. It's actually a place I'm quite familiar with from, from FaceTime when we commentate. <laughs> but if you could just do the honours and just explain where you are to everybody. Um, I'm in, uh, in the attic. Um, the spare bed is completely ruffled uh, on my right side. And that's not from me, but from the dog who likes to join me um, when I'm sitting up here. Okay. My kicker bike is here as well uh, with my old Trek doing some indoor sessions when I feel like it or when my trainer says I need to do that. I have my desk here with my Eurosport broadcast box, an extra laptop and some lovely signs on the wall from the Ronde van Vlaanderen, Amstel Gold Race, Omloop Nieuwsblad. You know, the stickers that you put on the car, I get them yeah. as a memento and just pull them on, on the wall. So this is my 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 woman cave. My husband has the room next door, okay. with all his um, his collections of beer labels and and books and whatever. And that's where he works. And this is my place. <laughs> so he collects beer labels. I I used to collect beer mats. Uh, well, my, my grandfather actually, who's sadly no longer with us, gave me a big collect, a big box once, and it was just full of beer mats from all over the world, primarily from Germany. Actually, he spent a lot of time. Not beer Germany. mats, labels. These, these are labels. labels. Yeah, so so he just gently yeah. eases them off the bottle, does he? And how does he mount them? How does he? What does he do with them? Uh, they're in photo albums, and they're really hard to get because uh, you know who, who puts photos in albums nowadays. But uh, yeah, I, I, wherever I go for my job, I usually just find a beer beer store and, and find him some local beers if I'm not flying and yeah. can take them in the car. So it's usually the present that I bring home when, I, when I'm away from work. For us, that's very nice. So, um, so wh- and whereabouts in the Netherlands are you? Because I've actually, I've never asked you this before. So whereabouts are you situated? Um, it's a town called Vloten. Uh, it's actually also the birthplace of Annemiek van Vloten. Um, ah, okay. And it's part of the city of Utrecht, where we have the start of the Welter this year. Yes, of course. And where yeah, we had yeah. the Tour de France in 2015 and the Giro in 2010. Yeah. So it's the only um, city in the world that has hosted the three Grand Tours. We will wow. have moved by August because we're moving to another place uh, about 20 kilometers to the west from here where we're building a new house. But yeah, uh, yeah it's... Uh, they are they are on my trading routes in August. So you're building a new house. Well, I'm actually paying people to do that because oh. I'm 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 completely useless when it comes to handiwork. Yeah, I, I think I would definitely have to ask people to build a house for me. Is it is it one of your own design? Uh, is it something? <laughs> no, that, no, no, no. So it's just a new house that's internet. being built. We even bought a kitchen okay. off the internet. <laughs> yeah. We even bought a kitchen off the internet because it was uh, during the lockdown. So we yeah. had to buy a kitchen on Zoom. A Zoom that was kitchen. A, a Zoom neck. kitchen. Is that, yeah. Has that been successfully installed? Uh, not oh, yet. Have you, have, no. you, have you just crashed on. Is, that, is this my first ever Matt Stevens Unplugged crash? Are you okay? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I just I, I think I touched the laptop. Maybe I should. Oh, that's okay. Just, I thought you were a little bit unsteady in the chair and maybe just uh, just lost it for a minute. But thank goodness we've, we're up and running. Because um, I don't think we have, although we do have Niall, our producer on the call, I don't think he can provide neutral service if you do crash <laughs> on your chair. Anyway, um, Josie, just briefly, um, your last race, um, I missed it. That mm. is it with the Classica Jean Pareso Interior. That looked bonkers. It was a lot of gravel, 40k of gravel, and there were some people who really loved it and many people who actually hated it in the peloton. And mm. it's it's a discussion, of course, whether you should have gravel in, in stage races or not. But you know what? The UCI has gravel world championships now, so I think we will see more and more of it. But yeah, the sad thing as a commentator was that the uh, decisive move was about 40k out from the finish line, so there's not a lot of excitement left. 
So uh, then right. you need to fill in a lot of time uh, trying to find out facts and and sharing things with the viewers because you know you, you already know the winner. That's uh, that's always a difficult situation um, in commentary. But um, yeah, it was a, a it was a lovely place there with the, with the olives and and fantastic buildings and architecture and history. So I had a, a fair few things to say about that, but the race in itself was not as exciting, unfortunately. Right. And, it, and Alexei Luxenko won solo, didn't he? And um, am I correct in saying from the images I've seen on the internet, he won a giant bronze or golden olive? Yeah, that was amazing. It was a gilded <laughs> olive. It's like, that goes that goes to his home in, in, in Monaco um, on the mantelpiece, like telling his wife that he won a golden olive. It's it's something different than a, than a cup, you know? I, I do like olive. some... Yeah, definitely. I, I like. I mean, so I think one of my, I think my still my most favourite um, trophy in in cycling. I, I do love the uh, the Trofeo Senza Fine, the 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 Giro trophy. But I'm a big fan of the Trident at Torino. Mm-hmm. That is a proper. That's a, and there's a whole ceremony, isn't there, where a diver basically is in the sea, sticks it out, and somebody goes and takes it. It's like like something out of Arthurian legend. Was, was there anything like that from the um, Filipsenko and, and this 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 olive? Was it was it? Did it come out from the clouds or anything like that? How did that? Was what was no, the kind of no, no nothing exciting like lo- that? Local dignitaries bringing the olive. Uh, well, actually, the Spanish national coach just bringing the uh, the olive to the stage, and uh, well, there was that. He doesn't. He didn't seem very impressed with it. I think we were more impressed with it than he was. But yeah, it's a great thing. It's it's like you know. Uh, it's one of those things that's so unique to cycling, winning, winning that. I know that in the Ronde van Drenthe, they have like given out office chairs or a deep, <laughs> deep fat. Fr- Maya- no, but this is a true story. Mariana Voss once won a deep fat fryer because she won the Ronde van Drenthe. That's fantastic, isn't it? Bread baking I, machines, stuff like that. That's what they get when you when you win the Ronde van der Rente. I, I do. I, I was going to say, I, we don't often, sometimes we do. Now we're doing more work for um, digital. We generally try and stay on air if we can, unless it's ridiculously long for the podiums. And we would, And I quite, lorking, I quite enjoy talking through the podiums, especially when they drag on a bit and they're a little bit awkward. I, I kind of quite <laughs> like the awkwardness of, of the podium ceremonies. Um, last weekend, when I was commentating on, on Provence, um, it was a good 15 minutes and there was loads of chats and I had to make up stuff in between. But mm. um, I, I want to, in terms of my racing and the weirdest prize I won on a podium, I think I've said this before, actually, was a lettuce on one podium. <laughs> and then and then a, an electric shower was my, my next favourite one. Mm. Um, but but there we go. Right, okay. We I, I, once got, I, once, I once got a shower from uh, the people at Hands Grower. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, we have a Peter Sagan shower head at home. Is it, is it his face looking at you? No, 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 no. No, no it's this, it's this, <laughs> oh, God, my, that's far too visual. But, no, uh, his name is on the shower head. So the people who just um, rent this house after us, they get the Peter Sagan shower head. Wow. Do you know yeah. what? I'd be, I'd be tempted to unscrew that and take it with me, to be perfectly honest with you. And just stick a cheap one up. I'll send it to you, my friend. I'll send yeah, it to you. Yeah, that, that. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm a big fan. I mean, I don't necessarily need him in the shower with me, but uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, a limited edition Peter Sagan shower head. Why not? And let's be honest. I mean, I know this isn't an ad, but it's their quality. It's quality merchandise. Their shower stuff's lovely. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> Jose. <laughs> Um, let's go. Let's yes, go back because we've been waffling on in a very assumptive way about about commentating. But what was your route 
then into cycling commentator. Can you give us a bit of an explanation? Obviously, wind back a few years um, and yeah. tell us how you how you got into this game uh, ultimately. Well, cycling was always part of my life. My my, my father was a sports director and a, and a rider when he was younger. And when we were kids, my sister and I, we always had to go to these like local crit races. And we were always promised an ice cream once the race was over. But then my parents would meet all sorts of people they knew and, and chat with them. And, and it was like usually never happened that we got the ice cream. But cycling is always part of my life. And when I um, got ill, that was in 2009 when I had cancer. I started uh, watching a lot more cycling on television and started a Twitter account. And that kind of grew because I was just basically tweeting news from different sources, from Spanish and French and German. Um, and, and and that really caught on. And the boss at Eurosport, um, Denny Nalisa, former amateur world champion, he called me and he said that he needed somebody to write some articles for him. And then he heard my voice and said, I want you to do a sound check for the Eurosport News because I would like to have a female voice on the channel. Mm. So I went there and my first sound check, well, basically sounded like somebody had died because, you know, the first time you have a microphone in front of you, you, it's it's very intimidating. It can be very intimidating. Yeah. And during, well, he said, okay, you got the job. So I I did these like free one minute news flashes on on a night. But I remember him saying that, okay, I, I know you love your cycling, but... Um, you're not going to be a cycling commentator because I only want former pros and um, a woman that nobody's going to believe that. But then he left Eurosport about an hour, a, a year and a half later, and I got his job. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. And I was, we were, I was really thrown into the deep end. My first race was in 2012, the Vuelta. Yeah. And um, your first race the, was a Grand Tour. You're no, well, just in. the first. No, just the first two stages because nobody was available, right. and okay. um, the, he called me at like eleven thirty at night if I wanted to do the welter with him, and it it worked out well. Then my second race was a tour of Britain, and mm. then the next year he was gone, and I got I got all the big races that I did for the next five years, so like all the Spanish and French stage races, Catalonia, Basque Country, Pyrenees, Dauphiné, everything, uh, Tour de France, welter. And uh, it was just learning on the job, really. And in the beginning, it was way too much information in 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 a short span of time. And and gradually, you learn how to do it. I think um, I learned by by listening to others, and not other commentators, but other people who actually uh, know what they're talking about when it comes to mechanical stuff or you know the movement in the peloton, because. My, my thing has always been like, I don't pretend to know what it's like to be in a, in a professional peloton. Yeah. I only have to ask the questions to the person who does. Yeah. But it was, it was kind of accidental uh, that I ended up in broadcasting. I, I do remember that when I was 18, I went to university in Amsterdam. I was like, yeah, I, I do want to work in cycling, but it was more like the office job, you know, where they book all the flights in the hotels and uh, just as, a, as a, a secretary kind of person. Never in in the world could I have imagined that it would end up like this. It was I, it was a coincidence, and then you know it's it's a lot of work. But um, I just watch cycling for fun, like many people would. And I don't watch everything, you know. It's just like free races on at the same time. I don't watch everything, but I do read up on what happened, and it takes a lot of time to uh, to be up to date. But this is my hobby. This is this is my passion. So yeah, it's it's a great privilege to be. 
um, to call this your job, actually. But it was yeah. all a coincidence in the end. Yeah, I mean, what were you so so you want to, at the point that you did you had your Twitter account and then then Danny Danny Ellison called you up and then a year later you're you're doing the lead comms. What were you? How were you earning a living at that point? What profession? What were you actually doing to pay the bills then? Uh, I was on benefits from the government because I had the cancer and I didn't get a new contract at the job at the insurance company where I was living. And then you get right. uh, basically your your salary for the next, in my case, 11 months because I had 11 working years. So I had a, a year where I just got benefits from the government and could find out what I wanted to do. And sure. um, I started my own business in 2011. Uh, it was called Sport Lingua, so actually sports and languages. Because okay. my best friend at the time said, um, why don't you try to do something with what you love, and that's sports, and what you're good at, and that's languages. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's how it started. But I could never, ever have imagined that it would end up um, in broadcasting. And I think that you you don't really know that you can do this until you actually do it. Mm. And I've always been talkative, you know, I've always been good with words and with languages, but uh, doing commentary for four or five hours in a in a grand tour stage, you, you just don't know before you actually do it if you can do it. And unfortunately, um, not many people get the opportunities um, I got. But it, I was lucky, and I'm still lucky to be to be here. I, th- I think I think what we need to set that in, and, uh, and we did have a little bit of a conversation before we actually uh, came on um, to the, and started recording that you you joined the industry or you, you, you know, you had your Twitter account and Danny, Danny rang you up, but it was, and let's be, let's be really honest. It's, it's an industry dominated um, by men um, mm-hmm. with, with certain, uh, it's fair to say still now, even I think, although I think things are a lot better re, re, no residual attitudes that are somewhat problematic, I think is, is, uh, is one way to put it. Uh, you're still pushing, I think you're still pushing against, I think the door is slightly ajar, but it's still hard work. So, when you a few moments ago were talking about aspirations within the cycling industry, but the fact that you were, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, almost socially conditioned enough to think that all you could do is work in administration is in, as a sad indictment, isn't it, on on our, on our industry? Thank goodness that you you were mm-hmm. given this opportunity and you've seized it with both hands because yes, there's an element of luck. It shouldn't be that there's an element of luck. It should be the best people for the job. But what you've done, you've you've seized the opportunity with both hands. And But you realize it's a privilege, as we all do, whether you're a man or a woman in this industry, doing what we do in particular. It's a very, very unusual job. It's a it's an amazing job and one that I um, I sometimes have to pinch myself. But for you, it's even even, even more so. Is, is, was that, is that fair to say what I, what I just said then? Absolutely. I was um, up until 2019 when I left Eurosport in the Netherlands. Um, I was the first woman to always in every sentence, you know, when I was called for a like an, an item on the radio or a news item in the newspaper, I was always the first female commentator. Mm. And in the Netherlands, we had four female lead commentators. And of course, you have a distinction between the lead commentator who kind of yeah, leads the broadcast and the expert commentator. Yeah, uh, We've got four, three are in tennis, and they're all former players. And okay. me, and I don't come from the sport. You know, I don't have a background in a sport. I started riding my bike eight years ago. So after I started in broadcasting. Um, so you always have to work a lot harder. You know, when I make one mistake, people would email the channel straight away. If yeah. my male colleagues make five mistakes, 
they will still get away with it. And yeah. um, they probably won't see it like that. But especially in the beginning, there was so much resistance online from people anonymously saying I should go back to the kitchen, that my voice was horrible, that I was a fat pig, that I shouldn't be discussing cheese, that I shouldn't be discussing food, that I shouldn't be discussing, that there was all sorts of things that I shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And I always learned that, you know, the silent majority is a silent majority. Mm. And somebody once taught me, like, if you have a hundred people, five people will think you are the absolute most amazing person in the world doing this job. Five people will think you're the absolute most horrible person, usually comes from yeah. jealousy. And 90 yeah. people are just silent. They just yeah. don't say anything. Um, and I heard those silent people after I decided to leave in 2019. But by then, um, years and years of online abuse had just accumulated. And it was not a good, per not a good period in my life. Um, and then you just tend to believe that what people say, like anonymous accounts say about you, it's like, yeah, maybe they are right. Maybe I'm not good at what I do and maybe I shouldn't be here and maybe somebody else should be doing this job and maybe my voice is horrible and maybe I am too fat. And you always, in, and when you're not in a good place, you tend to believe that one person out of a hundred that say something, says something it's negatively. Totally. So it all mounted up and I said, I have to get out of this spotlight. And yeah. that's what I did in 2019. I just stepped away completely from the spotlight. And uh, that was that was the best decision I could take. I mean, it, looking back, I guess, and especially in, in relation to what you're you're doing now, um, but, but still, I wouldn't exactly call it serendipitous. It still it still shouldn't have happened. You shouldn't have been forced out of a place by the by the opinions of people who don't matter. But I do understand. I do understand why you did. But that's. That's a, again another exceptionally woefully sad indictment on the way people carry themselves on social media. The fact that I, I doubt any one of those people who made you feel like that would, if they met you at an event or something, would say that to your face. Of course, that's they exactly would. that's exactly it's just an it, absolute. Matt. It's it's one of the the biggest things. I mean, I I love so I do like to love. I, I, I yeah, I like social media, but it's a it's a dark place and can be very very damaging. And um, I wish people would just think to themselves before they type something that's going to hurt somebody's feelings especially people who are um they could have underlying issues it's make them particularly fragile or whatever but it, even somebody's pretty pretty robust if you say you know would you say that to that person's face and, and ultimately it would be no um no i've, I've never had it's, uh, it's, all, it's awful never at, at, a, at a, a cyclocross race or a trek event or a youth cycling where i was involved people came up to me and said right into my face how incredibly awful i was no, they do it anonymously. Uh, yeah, they even yeah. set up anonymous email accounts. They do it on, on Facebook. They do it on Twitter. And then people say, well, don't read it. Well, it's pretty hard if somebody tags yeah. you to ignore yeah. that. And it yeah. kind of just makes a, like, a, it stings, you know. you can. Mm. I get so many positive reactions on Twitter since I, I, um, I switched to English. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a world of difference with the Dutch and the Flemish crowd, I am, I'm sad to say. When, when we started last year, because we did our, I did my first race on GCN with you. Yep. There was, and I don't, I don't want to brag, but there were over 2,000 reactions. And I yeah. thought that the reaction would be about, oh, my God, finally they got a woman. No, like maybe three. The reactions were about how good the broadcast was, how great our chemistry was, how great my knowledge of the riders was, how great my knowledge of the French language was. There was... There was not one bad word in all those reactions. And I thought, wow, 
I, I had no idea what was happening to me because I was, I was so conditioned with all the bad reactions yeah. um, that I was kind of overwhelmed that there were so many people actually liking what I did and do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how did that actually come about? And I know it's a, these last couple of years um, have gone in a blur. And, and I think it's worth mentioning, although I should have mentioned it at the top, although I, I feel like I know you very well, Jose, because we, <laughs> we see each other, you know, with pretty much in a, a lot of regularity. But, but you're in the Netherlands. I'm up in the north of England uh, broadcasting primarily remotely from time to time we're in a studio, but still we've never met. So no, it's, we haven't, it, it, no. It, it, is, it is quite strange. Hopefully we'll be able to meet for a beer and a bike ride at some point in the very, very near future. But ha- can you just explain to people who are listening who, are, who appreciate what you do, you're now working um, alongside myself, Dan and, and the rest of the crowd, Carlton and, and the rest, um, how you joined Eurosport GC and how did that actually come about? Uh, after the pandemic, so when we started in August of 2020, GCN wanted to produce some highlights videos and, and Daniel called me. I was actually in an open air museum with my best friend and her three daughters. And, and Daniel just called, Daniel Lloyd called me and said, do you want to do the voiceovers for those highlight videos? And of course, you know, I was uh, overwhelmed. And then he, he said something like, yeah, maybe uh, next year when, because we, we've got all the, all the races already planned with all the commentators, maybe I'll call you next year. And then just, for me, out of the blue in January, January uh, last year, I got a planning. <laughs> I just got, it's like, my God, I'm just, I'm back. I'm back on Eurosport. And um, it just, it, you know, in life, in everything, whether you're in broadcasting or whether you're working somewhere else, you need people who believe in you. Mm. And uh, Daniel has been one of those people um, at a former job, an insurance company, somebody saw something more in me and offered me some some education to to kind of um, get a better job within that company. Y- you need people in your life who want to uh, go, who want to try something for you, and who have faith in you. And I'm just very grateful to to Daniel that he that he thought about me and um, that I'm still here after a year and uh, got some great races ahead for for this year as well. Um, it, it must and he be. said, he said to me, and that was, and that was, that was something that I will always remember. Um, he said to me, well, Jose, you have to remember that you, you work, you're working really hard for this. And I never really considered it like that because it's such a passion for me. And that was also, that's also one of the pitfalls, you know, if you, if you're so passionate about something, you can become your job. That was also yeah. one of the problems with Eurosport in the Netherlands. I did 160 race days a year, all the big World Tour races. By anybody's standard, that's a lot. That is a lot. All the World Tour races, all the women's racing, all the track racing, everything in France and and Belgium, and France and Spain, Norway, um, all those races. But I had become Eurosport. So when mm. I tried to find different jobs, I was like, no, you are Eurosport. So yeah. uh, and now I got free. Um, free jobs um, next to to Eurosport GCN. I, I write features, long feature interviews for Cycling Tips, yeah. and I also work with SRAM. Um, we do um, documentaries. Last year we did Perry Roubaix, for example, and I also do some social media for them. So I now have more balance in what I do and mm. um, can enjoy what I do on Eurosport and GCN fully because not everything depends on it anymore. Yeah. There's more eggs. There's more eggs in one. There's more eggs in more baskets. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think you get that because um, I'm in a in a very similar position. I do a lot of commentating, um, but I also do other things in similar to you. You know, social media stuff, um, features for 
you know, this is a Sigma Sports podcast. I do features for Sigma as well, which I really enjoy. And I think they actually help leverage the quality of your of your of your commentary. You get an extra depth because you're you're engaging with the with the practitioners of the sport, i.e., the athletes themselves, the brands, you know, um, the, the the countries. You, just mm-hmm. to be, you, I, I feel doing other stuff around the commentary. I think that really shores up and helps me. Um, uh, gives me a little bit of a break from commentating, but when I come back, I come back re- refreshed with a new insight into an athlete that I've spoken to or a team or, or whatever. I, mm. I think they really do, and I, I'm sure you feel the same. They complement each other really, really well. I'm, I'm so incredibly fortunate that all the assignments that I actually have complement each other. So when I'm at a cyclocross race for for SRAM in the wintertime or whether I speak with, with riders, I had an interview with Heinrich Hausler the other day for Cycling Tips. Yeah. And I'm just always amazed at how, how amazing these athletes are, but also how human they are. And yeah. that we just have a lovely, lovely chat for like 30 minutes. And um, it's it's a privilege to to be able to just call Mariana Voss or, you know, ask. It's like the other day I asked a phone number from a rider uh, via Twitter and I get these phone numbers. It's like, oh, my God, I'm just I'm just about to call this and this person. It's like there's the person I'm looking at at, at the television and I get to call him and just and just ask Mariana Voss what she thinks about being the greatest of all time. So that was my first question. It's like. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about you being so amazing, fantastic, and the greatest of all time. But how do you see that yourself? Yeah. And I always get to ask the questions that I wonder about. And, ha- yeah. and what kind of great situation is that? You can just ask these amazing athletes just what, what's on your mind. No, you, you are, I, I, again, <laughs> I, can, I can only echo that sentiment and agree um, wholeheartedly. Um, Josie, we're going to just, we're not going to pause the pod. What we're going to do, we're going to change tact ever so slightly because um, I asked you earlier on, um, late in the day, I would normally ask on an email so I can prepare better. Um, mm. The town you were brought up in, or the towns you were brought you were mm. brought up in. I know you're, you're educated in Amsterdam, but one of the the towns that you were brought up in as a youngster was is it uh, Covorden? Covorden. Covorden. Uh, um, yeah. It's time now, Jose, for the Covorden quiz. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yo yo, what's up? Y'all ready? Uh-uh. Let's do it. Uh-uh. Turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Kuvorden quiz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, here we go. Um, again, thank you very much indeed, Niall, for producing such a high-quality, albeit low-budget, uh, jingle. Uh, for Matt Stevens Unplugged. Yes, it's time for the Cavorden quiz. Um, Josie, please do not worry. Um, I'm not going to uh, put you on the spot too much. There's four questions based on one of the towns that you're brought up in, but it's multiple choice, okay? Ah, okay. So, so you just relax into the quiz. It's a little bit of fun, um, but uh, I, I must say, I, I took nearly an hour uh, to research this quiz, so please do bear that in mind when okay. answering. Okay, okay, so, right. And please do also forgive my um, fluctuating and different pronunciation of the word every time I say it, so I'm trying to get my head around it. Uh, anyway, so question number one. Okay, which Canadian city did Cavorden indirectly give its name to due to, the, due to a British explorer's ancestry? Vancouver. Okay. Oh, sorry. You, you said multiple choice, but yeah. But, uh, no, you get. A, is, it, is it Vancouver? <laughs> it's Vancouver. Yeah. Bonus point because you didn't. I didn't. Add, that's what. Yeah. Well done. Flipping heck. Um, it's George Vancouver, isn't it? So George Vancouver's family, mm-hmm. uh, as a British explorer, came from uh, Cavorden, and then he went and, and basically founded 
Vancouver. Um, I actually put down Edmonton, Hamilton, and Abbotsford as well. Um, all sound, I, I chose those because they all sound like they could be a, a British person's surname. Um, but there we go. <laughs> right, so you've got two points. I always give an extra bonus if you if you jump ahead. Okay. So you're, you're all ready. Kind of in the lead. You've already made the early move, actually, Josie. You're, you're in the break. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Question two. Translated from the Latin, what is the motto on the scroll on the coat of arms of Cavorden? Okay. Is it A, I am overcome by many dangers? Is it B, we will always look forward? Is it C, never faltering, we stand proud? Or is it D, strive beneath and upwards? Oh my. Yeah. I'm, I'm already in awe that you managed to find three other Latin phrases, but. Um... Well, I made the, well, I made the, well I've, I've, I've made all the others up. Oh uh, uh, yes, no, they're, they're, but, but I, I I do like I do like having a go at Latin. So I, was, I actually went into yeah I went a deep dove. Well, <laughs> so uh, what, there have what, been yeah there have been a lot of battles. We do have a castle, so yes. I would go with A. I am overcome by many dangers. Correct, Amondo. Yeah. Two out of two, flipping egg. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I ask, I'm pretty proud of never faltering. We stand proud uh, myself. Um, and in Latin, yeah. it is yeah. multis periculis supersum. There uh-huh. you go. Yeah. So I guess periculis is like peril, isn't it? Or danger. Yeah, um, yeah it's a Spanish word of um, uh, peligro. It's also yeah. danger. There we go. So you've basically got three out of two at the moment which is very yeah, very good is, okay that is impressive yeah this is this is looking like this could be a record okay question three Caforden is the oldest city in the province of Drentha what year did it receive city rights okay so Oof. it's the oldest city in the province of Drentha what year did it receive its city rights was it A 1400 B 1403 C, 1406, Come D, on. 1408. <laughs> if you say it's like 1300, 1400, 1500, 1600, oh, no. I, would have, I would have known it was somewhere in the 15th century, but now you give me like two years apart. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, I sensed you'd be very good at this, so I'm going to really kind of put, try and put you on the ropes here. Uh, I'll just go for the last one, D. It, it's correct. <laughs> Flipping heck. But that's Four not a multi- in, in multiple choice, you usually have like two answers like you can discard immediately and two that are m- more or less similar. But this is not a great multiple choice question, having I, I, six I, years apart. I think it's a brilliant multiple choice question because you have to really yeah. think. So I remember doing multiple choice exams to get my, um, when I joined the police, there was no there was hardly a question you could throw away. It was like, oh my God, it could be only four of these. And it was le- <laughs> learning about the nuances of law. Um, mm. So I think what I'm maybe subconsciously applying was my the, the previous really ridiculously hard police exams to mm. the Matt Stevens Unplugged quiz. So apologies for that. But anyway, you are doing rather well. You've got four out of three, which in itself is slightly existential. Uh, question number four. Okay. Die Herren, die Kovadoren, the yeah. Kovadoren, is considered... Uh, Josie, one of the top restaurants in the city. Okay. Is it? Oh. Yeah. Well, I, 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 hold on a minute. I'm just going to fire it up. Yeah, it's, it's con- actually it's considered number one in the city. Oh. Um, but my question to you is, as of today, i.e. this morning, how much in euros 
was its brie sandwich on the menu. Okay, <laughs> right, okay. Was it? <laughs> and, and just to give a bit more detail, the brie sandwich on the menu, it's lukewarm brie, flour yeah. honey, nut crunch, mm-hmm. uh, and the bread is organic and lactose and E number free, according wow. to the menu. Um, Incredible. But what price was it? So if you're going to lunch today at the, this particular restaurant, how much are you going to pay? Are you going to pay A, €7.75, B, Seven euros ninety-five. Oh, C eight euros twenty-five. Or D eight euros seventy-five. Oh, <laughs> how much do you reckon for a brie sandwich uh, at the top that, restaurant? Eight twenty-five. I'll pay that. I'm afraid it's incorrect. It's eight seventy-five. Uh, oh, oh man, prices still, are going up. Prices are going up. But still, um, <laughs> let's just top this up. You've still managed to score, and um, I, I think I. A live studio audience going to go wild. 100%. Well done. Woohoo! Flip an egg. And I moved out like 25 years ago. So. That's good knowledge. So I, I think that the, the last question, um, there's not a lot about Kovdoran on the internet. So I thought I'm going to have to go further afield and look into restaurants and and and, um, and inns. And I thought, yeah, let's do this. So there you go. It's actually, well it's, it's actually in the castle, the restaurant Heren, Heren van Kovorde, the Lords of Kovorde. Yeah, okay. Uh, but I've never been there, though. Probably it thought too, mean, was too expensive, but it seems quite reasonably priced. So yeah, I, might, I might go. No, yeah, Brie, they've got a healthy sandwich, smoked trout, a roulette smoked trout, cucumber, granny smith, mm. horseradish mayonnaise. Mm. That's eight seventy-five. Mm. Well, that sounds uh, reasonable. Smoked steak, mm. um, and it does look it's nice. Photos and mm. the soup of the day um, is it druge mustard? There's a druge mustard soup. Uh, D R E U G E. How do you sell that drug? Uh, droge worst, dry, dried sausage. Dried sausage mustard, yeah. Or as we um, say in the local uh, local accent, droge worst. So oh, that's right, right. okay. Droge worst. Brilliant stuff, yeah. Um, thank you very much indeed. So well done. Oh, that's the, that's the quiz over and done with 100%. Exceptionally good. Um, so I, I want to concentrate a little bit. Go back to the commentary because obviously it's something that we that we, we do. It's something that is very important. And um, can you just give us a sense because people always ask me about what goes on. They're always interested in what goes on behind the scenes. And, and generally when I'm away, I always, I will say quite often do little Instagram takeovers for people that uh, I do stuff for. I've done it for Sigma uh, before in the past. And um, people are always intrigued about what goes on behind the scenes. So on a, but although we, we all of us primarily work from home now, so what would be a typical day of prep or what would you do on the lead in to a broadcast um, typically? If just just for somebody who didn't know uh, yeah. what went on behind the scenes in terms of preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say most of the preparation is done at 365 days a year. You know, yeah. I have to know what happened in Oman, in Provence. Uh, I have to follow Algarve, uh, Ruta del Sol, all these races that we have now. Um, so I, I try to follow them. I have my little race sheet where I just like note down the uh, peculiar things and who won and how the sprint was and who crashed and things like that. Um, last year I held it up until April, I think, and then it just kind of drowned in in the work. But um, most of it's just reading on Twitter. Um, and what I always do, I have a, a sheet with uh, the name of the race, uh, the five previous years, five previous years, top five, profile of the race, uh, climbs, finish, passages, and then about an hour and a half or something before we go live, I just look up the race situation, sees in the breakaway see whatever interesting facts I can find that can be, you know, that can be online, that can be sending a WhatsApp message to to some of the riders that I know. It's like, do you have some nice 
gossip and interesting facts about this and this rider. And then we do a sound check, which is always a very exciting moment if all the connections are working. And then, yep. then I'm just hugely relieved to to hear your voice or, or, or Magnus or, or yep. Brian or, or whoever, whoever. And then it's just getting my tea and getting my blanket and telling the dog to leave the, the room and uh, we start. And yeah. I don't, I always wonder, it's like, I never know before what we are going to discuss. You know, I always look into, you know, uh, the finished town and are there some interest, sometimes the race organizers provide like some tourist information, but I build a lot from what I learned at university, uh, learning um, Spanish and French history. So, you know, kind of building from, from what I already know and, and explaining a little bit what we see. And of course, in the Netherlands and Belgium, that is, that, that's the place I grew up in. So I already know a lot of the facts and a lot of the uh, history bits. And, and often when, when you are telling something or when Magnus is explaining things about time trials, I just go on online and find interesting facts about a tower that we just passed and whether there was a young lady held captive there for three years because her dad didn't want her to marry the local farmer or, you know, that sort of fun stuff. Um, I always look it up while we are on air or sometimes even when we're talking. And then I just keep a constant eye on Twitter and on WhatsApp and people send me information. And I always encourage people to do that because, you know, I don't know everything in the world and other people do. And and then we get to the finish line, which is always a very exciting moment. And I'm always, it's always very scary to call a finish. Um, uh, and then I made it, I called the right winner and it's like, okay, another day done. And it's it, there's always a huge feeling of relief and happiness when, when a broadcast is done, not because it's done, but because it went well. And yeah. uh, it's, oh, for me, great. it's a 365 day a year job. That's really, um, that's quite, it's a really nice way to answer it because it, it wasn't my question, but I'm glad you you did talk about that because the more you think about it, you know, um, my preparation is pretty similar to yours. I know we have our own little idiosyncrasies and I like to have a lot of screens up with information on. I also like to have a lot on paper as well as a, as a backup just in case for some reason I lose, I lose a connection. But I guess these days if you lose a connection, you lose everything. But I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a blend between... The digital side and so that there's so much open source information available if we if you look hard enough but i like it hardwired i like it on paper too but um it's- most, most of it is, most of it is in my head and i'm always amazed at what kind of facts are somewhere buried in my brain yeah. and when something happens it's like oh i know something about that because i saw it on television you know my husband is really into the romans so i i get or in and the, the first and second world war really mm. weird combination but um so I, I know a lot about that stuff because we watch these documentaries on on television i listen to a lot of podcasts uh while i'm on the bike or in the car so there's there's all bits and sorts of information in my head that i didn't know they were there but well when i see something um in the race like oh yeah i know something about that and people tend to tend to love those little factoids that i throw in and I don't know where I, I, they come from. They're just stored somewhere in me. I'm really good at pop quizzes as well because of all yeah, these we, useless facts. Yeah. Uh, me me and, uh, and my wife, Holly, are very, very avid pop quizzes. Um, um, we, we average two a week. Sometimes we could do three, but that's probably a bit too much because wow. it involves too much beer, <laughs> but we do at least a couple of weeks when we can. Um, but um, it, it awesome. is interesting, um, uh, just those, those random bits of knowledge and, and – 
and for me, I, I didn't know that you, that's what you studied um, at university, but it- Well, I did, it it, I did five, I did five things actually. Um, I never completed any of them. So right. it was a bit of, my, my academic career was a bit of a, a disaster. But in but the end, all these little, stuff, yeah. And all these, all these things I learned, um, well, ended up being useful now. <laughs> 20 years later i think that's that's one thing it's really this will ultimately lead on to to my next question about about language and and the fact that uh, cycling is a global sport although it's still fundamentally um its heartland its base um that has its longest history in in mainland europe um (laughs) and and you studied uh language you studied history um and I try to get it across sometimes in races. It depends on on the ebb and flow of a race, especially if we're talking and um, going through stage three or four of a, of a week-long stage race. Quite often there's a pattern that's emerged. Um, there's like a holding pattern in a race that we're all very, very familiar with. Other stages are more cha- chaotic. There's a lot more action. But that is when you can bring out this sort of information. Uh, and the same for the start and finish towns. I always think it's important to paint a picture, a cultural picture of where the race is the race passes through and some commentators do it a bit more some some do it a little bit less but personally i think it's massively important because most bike races um, most bike races are supported and heavily financed by tourism mm-hmm. boards <laughs> and so we have a we have a not just a you know commercial obligation but i think a cultural obligation to give deep as deep a context as we can without undermining the racing getting the balance right is always a tough one um but it, I, I think the history it, it goes hand in hand with, with the modern racing i think it's so important to to blend them together yeah, it's it's great fun. Um, I always liked discussing history and and the regions where we've been, um, because you know I don't know a lot about uh, being inside the peloton. You know, that's up to you or or Magnus or Brian or or Adam Blythe. Adam was like kind of wowed by a little fact that I had the other day when we did it's Wild de Bisseja that actually the second oldest person in the world was living there. And she she turned one hundred and eighteen years old this week. That's the kind of just, yeah. That's, that's, that's mega. That's so cool. And I was like, Adam was so amazed by that. And we had never worked together. It's like I was a bit like it was a bit daunting working with Adam for me because I I didn't know him. And I was like, oh my god, what what would you think about me? Yeah. But uh, after day two, we we kind of got into a good flow. And and there was a first time I made him laugh. And uh, I always try to make a little bit of fun in commentary. You know, it's it's not world politics. It's it's cycling, and everybody should just have a good time. And the other day, somebody said to me, and that's exactly what I always aim to do. It's like listening to two mates having a discussion about cycling in a bar and just mm. listening in. And that's exactly what I that's exactly what I do. You know, yeah. it's it, I always of course you do it good. You try to you prepare well, you do a good job. But in the end, you should have fun in your job, whatever job that is. And uh, this is the way that I have fun, just joking around with you and um, making like jokes about myself and my complete lack of bike skills or you know love for cheese or whatever um it's just it's just fun it's just yeah, fun. It, it, it it is it's uh as we we talked about it at the top of the at the top of the pod didn't we about the uh about the the, the privilege it's it's a very very privileged position but then there's the quite often our, our job is is an e- is an easy one in many ways but then everybody the, the, if you think about how many people are listening to what 
to our broadcast now and uh, across across the world. And quite often, it's fractured slightly because of the regionalization um, of where certain programs are broadcast. That's a separate discussion uh, anyway. But, you know, a lot of people listen to, to what we're saying and, and trying to strike the right balance of informing them, you know, giving them a narrative about the race, giving them as much information as we can about what we think is unfolding. Also, adding an exciting narrative arc that ultimately builds to some sort of crescendo at the end, um, a layer of, of culture, context, history, um, and then and then dialogue and then, then making it human as well. There's a lot, there's so many different elements there. And there's always going to be, from time, from time to time, or actually all the time, you're not going to please everybody, but you've got to try and please as many people as you can without assuming info, without assuming um, that people know too much. So you can't patronize people. You can't be over geeky. So it's a, it's a really hard tightrope to walk. But how do you, and in, and in that, on that note in particular, just going off on a slight one, um, because you have such an amazing command over several languages and, and your command of, of English is, it's better than a lot of a lot of people who speak who speak the language, and I, I still find it fascinating that you commentate in a second language. Um, but that's just for one. But I know since you've been broadcasting, and, and Rob Hatch gets this the same. Let's let, let's get this get get this out in the open. Some people um, have a real problem with the fact that you speak in an accent. At, how do you kind of deal with that? I mean, I, I think it's quite xenophobic, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I, I, I do my best with accents. I'm not great, but I do my, my best. I speak a little bit of French, so I'll try. Um, but just explain why you commentate the way you commentate it. I mean, I shouldn't need to ask you, but I think we do need to address the issue because there's some people who just think you're trying to be clever and you're not, are you? You're just speaking language <laughs> in the way it's supposed to be spoken. Uh, you know, uh, so no, just explain I, I, that. No, I don't want to be clever. But, you know, uh, last week we had uh, the race with the rather long name, um, La Vuelta Ciclista a la Región de Murcia, Costa Calida, Gran Premio Banco, Sabadell. Okay, yeah. that's the Spanish. Yeah. But if I'm in a race situation and I'm, I'm talking with Brian, I will call it the Vuelta Murcia. Yeah. You know, because uh, you can say it once and, you know, you can say Vuelta Valencia, but you can also say the Tour of Valencia. You can say Tour de France. You can say Tour de France. It's I always try to mix it out a little bit, with the exception, of course, of Dutch, because why should I say Wood van Art or Matthew van der Poel when it's my yeah. own language? Yeah. You know, it's my own language. And yeah. uh, it, it, for me, it's not easy. It's not that difficult to switch between English, Dutch, Spanish and French. Or, mm. But it's really difficult to switch between English and German because right. uh, that's, that's the hardest one for me because German okay. and Dutch are so, um, so the same. You know, in Dutch, you would say Pascal Ackermann. In German, you would say Pascal Ackermann. You know, it's, it's a right. subtle difference. But yeah, yeah. Um, that's sounds completely alien to me. So then people react. It's like, if you say like German names, they sound Dutch and that's true. But mm. if you have, for example, our prime minister, our prime minister, Mark Rutte, he goes to the NATO and then he says, on behalf of the people of the Netherlands, I want to discuss the situation in the Ukraine. It's like, can't this guy just speak English, you know? Um, and it's, it's sometimes, I don't, you know, I always say, like, everybody has a talent. My talent is this. Mm. And um, it, took, it took a while to acknowledge that I had a talent, but this is my talent. Um, I don't have any talent for sports. I don't have any talent for mathematics. I'm an absolute disaster in calculating or my spatial awareness. I rely completely 
on Google Maps and my um, my my bike computer. Right. I can be I can be at the exact same place three times and still not recognize that I've been there before. It's a complete mystery to mm. my husband. So he makes these routes for me on Strava. So and then they show up on my bike computer. And then when we're in, in France on holiday or something, and I take a, a wrong turn, he calls me, and he says, "This is the command center. You should have gone re- left there." And then I like turn around and go left. My spatial awareness is an absolute tragedy. But yeah, everybody has a talent, and and this is mine. And um, the first time I did English commentary was in 2014 um, with Phil Liggett, the legendary Phil Liggett at the World Championships. Um, and I had no idea. And the hardest thing actually is calling a finish in 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 another language, because I don't have the fantastic skills that Carlton has or, or Rob has when it comes to uh, playing with language. You know, Carlton is an absolute master in that. Um, I don't have that. My vocabulary is naturally more limited, mm. but um, people understand that. People understand that I am not British. Um, I have no idea where my accent is situated. Um, after working a weekend with Brian, it might have gone a little bit more up north. You might go um, a bit Scottish, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't do that on purpose, but when I no, no. somebody from Australia, like after an hour, it became Australia. It's, it's, but because this is not my native, this is not my native tongue, so it's it's sometimes difficult to um, to. And it's not to mock anybody. It's not to mock Brian or or you know. I have a colleague at Cycling Tips who's Irish. Um, or when I ever get the honor to work with Sean Kelly, it's not to mock somebody, but it's it's inevitable that you take over a little bit of that accent. But no, it's not to show off. It's just, um, yeah, it's yeah, it's just a little bit of I think normal for me to uh, to speak a language the way it should be, and I can't yeah. do that in Hungarian, and I can't do that in Norwegian or in Polish or whatever other language. I only have you know the the Dutch and the French and the Spanish and the German. Um, but uh, I'm like, I'm really bad with Italian. I've never done Italian. I, I've done two Italian races in my life because I, I don't speak the language. So um, it's, yeah, it's not to show off. I don't want to show off to anybody. I, I hate I hate it when people would think that. But yeah, if people I, have problems yeah. with it, yeah, well, you know, we have 12 languages to choose from usually on GCN. So yeah, find yourself another language, you know. Yeah, I'm not going I, I, to butcher my own language because you don't understand what I'm saying. I, I think I'll just wrap that up by saying it isn't your problem, Jose. It's it's the person, if, if they have a problem, it's their problem and they need to sort that out, not you. If that's, yeah. I think that's the way we wrap that one up and that's not being it's, it's, you uh, know, it's combative. Hard. It's, it's just, it's just that, isn't, that isn't your problem. You know, your, your no, problem but isn't it. You know. I find it very difficult when people um, say something to me that criticizes me. I don't do really well with, with criticism. It tends to throw me off balance a little bit, hmm. a, a lot less than it used to, but... You know, you're in the public's eye, um, yeah. and that comes with these things that people have an opinion on you. And for me, it's it's the it's not the, the best thing about my job. But on the other hand, Matt, we go out to like all the world now. I get tweets from people in Canada and in the US and in Australia and in New Zealand and yeah. all around the world that people are, are listening in. And it's like, how amazing is that? So no, I always I always tend to see the good in people, and there's always people who want to hurt you. Um, there will always be people who will try to hurt me. Um, they sometimes succeed in hurting me with their words, but I always try to remember that most people are absolutely brilliant and lovely. Totally. No, I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Everybody, and also I think 
everybody, of course, is entitled to an opinion. Um, but it's how about you convey that with a little bit more empathy, a little bit more yeah. kindness, and, and and ask the question, you know, rather than just you know in a accusatory, borderline abusive way. That that's the problem I have. I've got no problem with people owning and having an opinion, but my problem is is the way we. And most express them. Uh, express them and communicate now. That, that's problematic. And again, it's only a, a very, very few people, um, which spoil it for the rest, I guess. But um, what is the most to you? What's the most enjoyable aspect of of your job? What do you love the most about about talking to lots of people all over the world about your favourite sport? That we all share the same passion. Um, I don't have a lot of people around me who love cycling. My friends don't like cycling. My husband doesn't like cycling. My father does. Uh, that's basically the only person. So just having this discussion and sharing the passion when you see something fantastic in a race, uh, sharing that with people around the world is absolutely the best thing about it. And I get a huge podium to do that. Um, and yeah, just sharing the love for the sport because this is, it's just a brilliant sport. Sports in general is, is absolutely brilliant, but uh, cycling is, is my sport and my, my, my biggest love. And I get to share that with so many people uh, online. Um, and that's great. That's the best thing of it. And uh, the best thing is just seeing all these fantastic places in the world. You know, I just booked myself a trip to the Provence after all that I saw in the past weeks, because I really want to go back there. Um, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, just the connection with the people who love the same sport. That's the best thing. Yeah, I I would I would agree. You know, sharing we all like telling people people that are close to us and even people that aren't, because we're we're speaking to people that we don't know from all over the world, but just trying to get across the fact that because we do this not just because we get paid to do it. I do it because we've we've both through different routes fallen into the sport that we love and we're like wow now we can talk about it to people so i feel you know a moral obligation to try and get the essence across the enjoyment the excitement across and and that is a real real pleasure isn't it it, it really really is now Josie, i know you you weren't a pro doesn't matter but you you like riding your bike um you get a phone call um i do you get a phone call you've got you got a phone call yesterday and it's a big big corporation saying Josie, we love what you do um here's a 10 million euro budget to set up your own race okay called the gp yose bain where is it (laughs) what does it look like Uh, i want to know um uh, yeah where is it it's to say okay let's say it's a five-day race it could be anywhere in the world where would you oh, where would you host it? My my beloved Provence. Okay. Uh, it has to be in Provence. Uh, doing some of the climbs that I did many times myself because some friends of mine lived uh, down in um, near Aix en Provence, uh, and also the climbs near Mont Ventoux uh, that I did so many times with my dad. He's uh, he's turning seventy this year. He's still a lot faster than me uphill. Right. Uh, not not so much in the flat, but he's like thirty kilos lighter than I am. So that. So that's a kind of a difference uphill, but we share that love for cycling. And um, I'm actually going to write a, an article about a climb that is so important to me um, next month. So yeah, okay. it has to be in my my beloved Provence. It's the, my favorite bit in the world. Yeah, but there's a lot of racing around there at the moment. It's a lovely way to open the season, isn't it? I mean, uh, and we've these races aren't exactly making a comeback, but because of um, the cancellation, I guess, of the uh, the Tour Down Under in particular and less teams traveling 
because of COVID restrictions, again, there's almost like a little bit of a renaissance, isn't there, of these mm-hmm. these smaller opening races of the year in, in Spain and and in France, and I, I think they're they're great. Um, and and I think they, they year on year now they seem to be becoming more and more important, don't they? They're, they're a little bit more prestige, as if they've been polished and be, are becoming a little bit more of an attractive proposition. In turn, we get absolutely brilliant racing and mm. these are by no stretch of the amount they're not training races anymore these are of course there's more lofty objectives further down the line but that it's a really exciting part of the season the last couple of years i've really loved these opening uh, opening few races absolutely um I, I i love like almost all of the races and I'm, I'm doing mostly smaller races on gcn and eurosport uh not the world tour races might change in the future i don't know we we have some some very talented people working there, and I'm just very happy with whatever race I get. And especially the smaller races that we get now are so unpredictable and less formulaic than a Tour yeah. de France, for example. Um, so, and, and just taking in the sights and, and hearing French and seeing France. And yeah, when, when I retire, I want to to move to France and, and have a nice big house with some dogs and, and eat cheese every day. Oh, that sounds idyllic. Uh, it's making me feel a little bit hungry, actually. Oh, uh, sorry, there's a funny noise. Random question alert. Oh. Random question alert. Random question alert. It is time for a random question. Okay, Jose, we've got, yeah. we're going to wrap up the podcast with uh, a random question. Um, I don't know, I've never seen this question before. Uh, mm-hmm. And as part of my contract with the people at Sigma Sport, they installed this uh, old... 1960s Russian supercomputer into my loft um, and every now and again when I'm doing a podcast a big red light starts to flash and a big printed out question comes so I've just torn it off like a fax mm-hmm. um, here's, here, here is it here is the random question for you are you ready? yep okay a slightly rubbish comic book supervillain offers you a slightly rubbish superpower okay do you choose A the ability to jump just 10 centimetres higher than you already can, or B, the ability to selectively unhear the Macarena when you accidentally hear it in public. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, this, this, these are like two things that I could do very well without. Um, yeah, I mean, they are. He's, I mean, just it's just give, like, yeah. Just give me a little bit more of athletic ability then. Let me jump a little bit higher because, yeah. I don't do well with gravity, so just uh, okay. let me beat gravity just a little bit more. Imagine, say, you're in a difficult, it's like you've got that, you granted that superpower and um, and say you had to, you know, rescue a dog that couldn't get down a step um, oh, yeah. and ordinarily you couldn't jump onto that step and you could uh, you could jump another 10 centimetres onto that step and rescue that little tiny dog. I mean, that's probably worthwhile, isn't it? That is, that is worth a lot. Like we have, we have one rescue dog and we saved her. And for her, we saved the world. And, uh, and and that's the great thing with, with rescue dogs and with any dog. Uh, they're just the most amazing creatures in the world. And uh, yeah, if I could rescue another dog um, with 10 centimeters of jumping power, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's do that. Let's do that. Well, that's what a, what a rather strange, but also lovely way to wrap up <laughs> the pod, Josie. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed it. And, and um, I'm... I think everybody, hopefully, who listens to this pod will uh, know a little bit more about you. Um, and I certainly have learned a lot more about you. It's been, it's been a pleasant chat because we, we're both in very privileged, different positions, but um, we love what we do. And um, I'm sure people would have loved your your insight and we'll, we'll continue to love what you're doing over the, um, 
over the airwaves and uh, airwaves, yeah. i waves. What do you call airwaves? Is the radio what over the digital I waves? I, yeah, I'm, I, that, thank you for reminding me that I'm old. Um, yeah, I just wish everybody had the same kind of fun in their job and and also got the same opportunities that I got in life, and and just get a chance to show what you can do in whatever job you want to do. But it's all about having just that little bit of luck and then somebody to believe in you. And I, I wish everybody could have that opportunity that I had. Thank you very much, Jose. It's been a pleasure. Catch up with you soon. Ciao. Wonderful stuff. I love her positivity. And it's true. You don't often know if you can do something until you actually do it. And I've really been enjoying working with Jose recently for GCN and Eurosport. So long may that continue. Thanks to Perry Apgwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you as ever for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and why not recommend it to the boss of an insurance company who took a chance and believed in you. If you know one and that actually happened to you, otherwise just recommend it to your friends. Finally, a massive thanks again to Josie for joining us on the podcast today. I hope she has a wonderful 2022 season with plenty of exciting races to call and I hope to share some of those with her too. Oh, cheers all. Stay safe and goodbye. <laughs> I had the, the line was scrolled down. Oh, 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 oh